Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Listening to Black History Unveiled with me, Amat Levine, the podcast where we spotlight pivotal moments, influential figures, and groundbreaking movements from Black history from the continent to the diaspora. Some people question why history is important. They might feel like history, especially Black or African, has nothing to do with them. But how we write and interpret historical events directly influences how we understand ourselves and our present time. Understanding history makes it easier to understand our world today. Before we start, I'd like to remind you that you can become a Patreon subscriber for just a dollar a month. As a subscriber, you can get pictures and maps that make the episodes easier to visualize, get episodes completely free of advertising, and get bonus extra episodes. By doing so, you're helping me making this podcast possible, considering it's a project I do entirely on my own. All info can be found at patreon.com slash blackhistoryunveiled. Please feel free to share the episode if you like it, recommend it to someone you know, or give it a rating or a review on the podcast app of your choice. I also want to remind everybody that English is not my first language, so I apologize for any grammatical or pronunciation issues. Today's episode is about the transatlantic slave trade, which is probably what many Westerners think of first when they think of the history of black Africa. I'd wager it is at the top of people's list, perhaps in competition with colonialism. Nevertheless, I get the impression that it's a subject characterized by questions for many. People usually know that the transatlantic slave trade happened, but not so much about why, how it started, or how far-reaching the consequences of it were. Therefore, the following two main episodes are a deep dive into transatlantic slavery. In truth, the topic is too big to fit into just two episodes. So in the future, I will do more episodes focusing on more specific events in this part of our world history. And I say our world history intentionally, 
because transatlantic slavery is as much white and European history as black and African. The point of these two episodes is not to cover every single aspect of transatlantic slavery. Instead, I view these episodes as a starting point. I want to provide a sort of foundation for people to understand better how transatlantic slavery began, what drove it, what allowed it to continue for over 400 years, and what set it apart. The second episode will be more about the golden age of the slave trade, what life was like for those enslaved, and the obscene amounts of money the slave traders made. But now, in part one, we'll take a closer look at how the trade first arose, how Portugal's exploration of Africa and the European so-called discovery of America combined to create this incredibly sad chapter in human history. In January 1482, a fleet of Portuguese vessels, brimming with soldiers, cannons, masons, and a myriad of building materials, pierced the horizon of what we now call Ghana. They dropped anchor in a tranquil bay, where the waves were but gentle whispers against the hulls of their ships. As they disembarked, they were welcomed by a sprawling beach, its sands kissed by the sun, and fringed by towering palm trees swaying in the wind. Right beside the beach was a quaint village bisected by a meandering river. The Portuguese chose a strategic hilltop at the base entrance as their base. This vantage point offered panoramic views of the sea and inland. Under the tropical sun they hoisted their flag, its fabric dancing in the warm breeze. Diogo de Azambuja, the captain and the leader of the expedition, donned his finest attire and took his place on a makeshift throne under the shade of a tree, awaiting the arrival of their hosts. Soon the Portuguese were greeted by a procession of locals. An orchestra led the parade, their drums and trumpets echoing through the air. A group of nobles followed them, their young servants carrying delicate fabrics to sit on. After that came a contingent of soldiers, armed with spears, shields and bows. Finally, the man Azambuja had been waiting for appeared, Kwamena Ansa, the local king, a so-called Omanhene. His body was adorned with gold jewelry, and even his hair and beard were braided with gold. Azambuja and Ansa exchanged pleasantries and gifts, setting the stage for negotiations. Azambuja's primary request was permission to build a permanent fortress, promising lucrative trade opportunities and even the chance for Ansa to convert to Catholicism in return. This move would make him a brother in the eyes of the Portuguese king. Ansa was initially dismissive. He had met Portuguese traders before and was unimpressed. The Christians who have come here until now have been very few, dirty and base, he told Azambuja. Perhaps that's why Azambuja had donned such fine attire. This mission was too important to be marred by a poor first impression. The Portuguese were trying to achieve something bold and innovative, to build a permanent headquarters this far south of the Sahara. Despite Ansa's initial reluctance, he was eventually swayed by the Portuguese's promises. The next day, they laid the first stone of what would become the first European fort in tropical Africa. The Portuguese named the area and the fort Elmina, the mine. They were drawn here by the allure of gold. 
But it was the trade in another type of commodity that would have devastating consequences and shape the world we live in today. For over a millennium, the Silk Road was a vital artery of global trade, connecting China to Europe via Central Asia, India and the Middle East. A popular theory suggests that the Ottoman Empire's conquest of Constantinople in 1453 disrupted this trade, leading Europeans to seek a sea route to China and India, thus sparking the Age of Discovery. Theories that so clearly create a cause-and-effect relationship between two famous events in world history often become popular. But they also run a risk of being overly simplistic. In this case, the theory is just flat-out wrong, ignoring Africa's significant role in the voyages of discovery. For the Portuguese, the exploration of the world's oceans began several decades before the fall of Constantinople. The real catalyst for Europe's voyages of discovery was in 1415, when Portugal, under leadership of Prince Henry, targeted the trading city of Ceuta. I've seen a few different ways of pronouncing this name. I've seen Thuta or Sebta, for example, but for the sake of consistency, I'm going with this version. Located in the far north of today's Morocco, the town is today a Spanish territory. But at the beginning of the 15th century, Ceuta was one of the most crucial trading hubs in the Mediterranean. It was one of the final destinations for the trans-Saharan gold trade, and in this town, the precious minerals were loaded onto ships bound for Europe. In the mid-14th century, the Mali Empire was pivotal in ensuring that large and regular shipments of gold dust reached Europe. However, in the early 15th century, when Mali was in decline, supplies dwindled. This contributed to a coin shortage in Europe in the 15th century. Domestic European gold production was low, and the devastation of the Black Death in the previous century had adversarially affected silver extraction. With the plague finally over and Europe recovering, the precious metals needed to mint the coins they had become accustomed to were suddenly lacking. The coin shortage was so severe that people reverted to barter in many parts of Europe. In his book, A Financial History of Western Europe, renowned American economic historian Charles P. Kindleberger writes that in Germany, it became so common to use pepper as a currency that the country's bankers became known as peppermen. Kindleberger also writes that the lack of coins, or precious metals, was one of the factors behind Europeans beginning to exert more and more effort to traverse oceans they had not yet managed to cross. The Portuguese attack on Ceuta happened swiftly on an August day in 1415. A large fleet carried the Portuguese army across the Mediterranean, and on board one of the ships was Prince Henry himself, then only 21 years old. He was eager not only to gain a foothold in Africa and seize the valuable trade, but also to win the favor of the church by conquering a city from the Muslims, with whom Christendom was in constant conflict. The conquest of Ceuta took only 13 hours. Afterwards, the Portuguese were convinced they had found the key to the rest of Africa by taking over the fortress. But Portugal's dream of reaping riches from Ceuta quickly crumbled into dust. The city, now just a Christian outpost in an otherwise Muslim North Africa, was cut off from the rest of the region. The Muslim traders simply rerouted their caravans. Instead of the goods traveling to Ceuta, they were redirected further west to the bustling port city of Tangier. Rather than becoming a golden goose for the Portuguese, Ceuta became a financial black hole since the city demanded constant fortification and a steady supply of troops to guard its walls. The Portuguese eventually realized this setback and instead set their sights on the uncharted waters to the west. In the ensuing decades, they claimed and colonized islands such as the Azores and Madeira, 
starting to expand their maritime empire. The concept of exploring the western coast of Africa is ancient. Around 500 BCE, a man known as Hanno the Navigator embarked on a daring seafaring expedition. Hailing from the ancient kingdom of Carthage, located in modern-day Tunisia, Hanno was a man of stature, possibly an aristocrat or a military officer. Our knowledge of his voyage comes from a single document he left behind, translated into Greek from the original language. The text paints a picture of Hanno's journey down the West African coast, his establishment of settlements, and his potential encounters with guerrillas. The extent of Hanno's journey is a matter of debate, of course. Some believe he ventured as far as present-day Senegal or even Cameroon. Others argue he only reached the shores of Morocco. The sources are open to interpretation, leaving us with no clear answer. But if Hanno traveled to Senegal or Cameroon, he was centuries ahead of his time. In the 15th century CE, when the Portuguese turned their gaze towards Africa, voyages on the open seas were fraught with peril. Furious currents, violent storms, and treacherous coastlines could spell doom for even the most seasoned sailors. Setting sail was a gamble, with no guarantee of a safe return. For European sailors, Cape Bujdur had long marked a gigantic obstacle. It's a headland in what is today Western Sahara, where the fog often hangs heavy, the currents pull ships in different directions, and the winds blow fierce. Over time, the area became the stuff of legends. Tales circulated of a climate so hot that the sea boiled, of sun rays that could set ships ablaze, and of monstrous sea creatures lurking beneath the surface. Many ships that tried to round the Cape and continue south never returned. Arab sailors were also wary of the area, naming it roughly equivalent to the father of danger. Prince Henry is also known as Henry the Navigator. It was a name he received not because he sailed the seas, but because it was under his leadership and with his funding that Portugal made considerable progress in navigation and shipbuilding. Under his guidance, the Caraval, a small, easily maneuvered ship ideal for coastal exploration, came into frequent use. The Portuguese had clear financial motives for their voyages. They sought to open up trade and find their own sources of gold. But there was also a religious motive. In a time when Christian and Muslim kingdoms were in constant conflict, the Portuguese believed that beyond North Africa, further south on the African continent, there were people who were not Muslims and therefore could be potential converts to Christianity. They also sought the mythical figure Prester John, who, according to medieval European legends, was a king who ruled a prominent Christian kingdom surrounded by Muslims and pagans. Prester John's kingdom was believed to be located somewhere in Africa, perhaps in Ethiopia. He was considered an essential potential ally in the eternal struggle against the Muslims. Year after year, Portuguese expeditions ventured further south. In 1434, Portuguese navigator Gilliens attempted to pass Cape Bujdur, but fear overcame him and he turned back. The following year, under Prince Henry's orders, Jans tried again. This time, he not only managed to pass Cape Bujdur, but also returned safely. He did not find any gold, but he did bring back something valuable. The knowledge that neither terrible sea monsters or gigantic whirlpools existed in the area. With the newfound inspiration, the expeditions continued. 
1441, the Portuguese reached Ras Nuadibu in present-day Western Sahara and Mauritania. Initially, there was small-scale trade with the local Imizio, the indigenous people of North Africa. They traded fabrics, clothing, animal skins, wheat, and small amounts of gold dust. But at the same time, spontaneous slave raids took place, revealing the immense potential of the slave trade. The South Europeans weren't new to the tradition of enslaving newly encountered groups under the banner of Christianity. In the 14th century, the Spanish and Portuguese launched sea raids against the Canary Islands, often kidnapping the indigenous population and selling them in European slave markets. By the 15th century, the Spanish had brutally colonized the islands, leading to an even more significant number of people being enslaved. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Gomes Jans de Surara, a Portuguese royal librarian and court chronicler, penned one of the earliest written accounts of Portuguese slave raids in Africa in his 1453 work, The Chronicle of Discovery and Conquest of Guinea. The book recounts the chilling tale of merchant Lanzarote de Fritas leading a fleet of six caravels to the Gulf of Argen in present-day Mauritania in 1444. Their mission was not trade, but the express purpose of enslaving people. They attacked small coastal communities of impoverished fishermen, kidnapping men, women, and children. After six weeks of confinement in the cramped, fetid holds of the ships, the fleet reached Lagos in southern Portugal. The so-called catch consisted of 235 people, exhausted and terrified. Desurada's text paints a haunting picture. Quote, Some held their heads low, their faces bathed in tears as they looked at each other. Some groaned very piteously, looking towards the heavens fixedly and crying out aloud as if they were calling on the Father of the universe to help them. End quote. A large crowd, eager to witness the spectacle, met the crew and captives. Among those present was Prince Henry himself, who observed the scene from horseback. He must have been pleased, for forty-six of the best slaves had been reserved for him. To distribute the remaining captives, they were divided into different groups. Desurara writes, quote, to increase their anguish still more, those who had charge of the division then arrived and began to separate them one from another so that they formed five equal lots. This made it necessary to separate sons from their fathers and wives from their husbands and brother from brother. 
No account was taken of friendship or relationship, but each one ending up where chance placed him. End quote. He continues, quote, As soon as the children who had been assigned one group saw the parents in another, they jumped up and ran towards them. Mothers clasped their other children in their arms and lay face down on the ground, accepting wounds with contempt for the suffering of their flesh rather than let their children be torn from them. End quote. De Surara's account reveals that the enslaved had diverse racial backgrounds. He describes them as white, black, and mixed. This underlines that skin color had not yet become the defining factor it would in the transatlantic slave trade. In the first half of the 15th century, you were enslaved not because you were black, but because you were a non-Christian, a heathen. The desire to convert pagans to Christianity was the primary justification for the raids, alongside the apparent economic gain. Prince Henry believed the cruelties the enslaved endured in this life would be offset by their redemption as Christians in the afterlife. This logic was twisted but effective. It opened the door for so-called salvation in the next life, all while legitimizing endless suffering in this life, with all methods of torture and pain being acceptable. Even though Desurara seemed to testify to the diversity of the captives, his account also reveals an early example of associating skin color with attributes. It's clear he values the black captives the least, and he consistently describes them as less intelligent, more uncivilized, and physically inferior. His document can therefore be seen as a very early example of the intertwining of skin color and character. As we all know, this intertwining would later become one of the defining aspects of the coming transatlantic slave trade. That black people were inherently considered inferior and therefore especially or uniquely suitable to be taken as slaves. While the Portuguese were experimenting with slavery, the voyages continued, and in 1444 the Portuguese reached the Senegal River. However, as they ventured further south, the slave raids became less popular. Rumors of the raids spread, allowing local populations to evade them. Moreover, these populations were well-organized and resilient. Several Portuguese units, hoping to enslave West Africans, were chased away by local villagers and warriors armed with spears and poisoned arrows. Nuno Tristão, the sea captain who had conducted earlier slave raids along the northwest African coast, met this fate himself. In the mid-1440s, he and over 20 men landed in what is now Senegal, just south of the country's current capital, Dakar. They aimed to kidnap and sell people into slavery, but were ambushed. Several Senegalese soldiers in quick war canoes surrounded them. Nuno Tristão and almost all of his men were killed on the spot. Other similarly disastrous landings prompted Prince Henry to order an end to the West African slave raids in 1448. It became clear that a different tactic was needed, one that relied on diplomacy and trade rather than violence. The coast of present-day Senegal was home to the Jolof or Wolof Empire. If you look at a map, it roughly stretched from the Senegal River in the north to the Gambia River in the south, which made it particularly suitable for trade. It had previously been the westernmost province of the Mali Empire, the great West African Empire we discussed in an earlier episode. But in the second half of the 14th century, when Mali was rocked by a series of conflicts over the throne, the Wolof people broke away and created their own kingdom. 
kingdom might be a bit misleading because it was more like a confederation of several states rather than a single cohesive kingdom. Nevertheless, this was one of the earliest states to agree to a peaceful trade relationship when the Portuguese started showcasing their goods instead of swords. The trade included gold and ivory, but also enslaved people. And now we've reached an essential part of this story. I touched on it briefly in the episode about the Mali Empire, still it bears repeating. Often when transatlantic slavery comes up, some point out that there was indeed domestic slavery in Africa long before Europeans arrived. And that is true. But it doesn't say as much as these people often think. The reason they're so eager to bring up domestic slavery or the Muslim slave trade is that they often want to excuse the transatlantic variant that followed. They want to emphasize that it wasn't so bad because Africans and Muslims did the, quote, same thing. This line of thinking is usually a thinly veiled attempt to diminish the atrocities of the transatlantic slave trade, or to try to make its unique features stand out less. It's a game of whataboutism. Slavery is by its very nature something terrible, regardless of where it occurs. For those subjected to it, it's a disaster. Having said that, there are differences between different types of slavery. We must be able to look at and make comparisons without trivializing or relativizing everything. So let's delve into some of those differences. First, one can never repeat it enough. Africa is an enormous continent with diverse cultures, languages, religions, and traditions. So there's no such thing as one single form of domestic African slavery. Instead, it varied significantly across regions. And the fact that slavery existed in Africa before Europeans arrived is also not unique. Slavery, sadly, is a deeply ingrained part of human history. Historically, slavery is mentioned in some of mankind's oldest written sources and has been part of our history for thousands of years. From the cradles of civilization, such as Mesopotamia and Egypt, to ancient Rome and Greece. From the Mayan culture of Central America to medieval Japan. In Sweden, where I live, thralls were a form of slaves in the Viking and Middle Ages. Until just a hundred or a hundred and fifty years ago, slavery was standard practice in many societies around the world. It is the time we live in now that is unique with its almost universal condemnation of slavery. Yet even so, it persists in many parts of the world today. Although most people have a specific image of what slavery is, there are many different types and definitions which can lead to confusion. Modern definitions include, for example, forced labor under threat of violence, extreme poverty or imprisonment, even if they are not legally considered someone else's property that can be sold and bought. It can also refer to situations where individuals are forced to work to pay off a debt or are entirely dependent on their pitiful wages for survival. Serfdom refers to situations where workers are tied to the land they live on. Usually they can't be outright bought or traded, but are forced to pay taxes and are rarely allowed to move or marry as they wish. It has been widespread in Europe throughout the continent's history. Then there's sexual slavery, probably the most prevalent in the Western world today. Through a historical, narrower lens, a slave was a person who was usually enslaved through violence, owned by another human being, lacked self-determination, was viewed as property, could be bought and sold, was forced to work or provide services, and had no control over their sexuality or reproductive systems. So, when Portugal began exploring Africa in the 15th century, Slavery was already prevalent in Africa, just as in Europe, the Middle East, Asia, and elsewhere. 
Both sides enslaved each other in the frequent wars between Christian and Muslim kingdoms. In the 16th century, prisoners of war often became galley slaves, chained to the oars of large ships and forced to row under threat of violence. From the 17th century onwards, the infamous Barbary coast of North Africa became a base for Muslim pirates who kidnapped Europeans, most of whom were held for ransom, but many were also enslaved. So, just like the rest of the world, slavery has a long history in sub-Saharan Africa. However, it is important to note that it vastly differed from the transatlantic variants. In some places, enslaved people could marry, own property, and climb to positions of power. It could often be organized in a rather complex and flexible kinship group system. This mobility was starkly different from places like the United States, where enslaved people were treated as cattle, as things, with no opportunity for social mobility. And their children, born or unborn, were doomed to the same fate. That's not to say that there weren't societies in Africa where the lives of the enslaved were also particularly hard, where they were subjected to back-breaking work, not allowed to mingle with free inhabitants, could lose their lives as victims in a funeral ritual, or retained lower social status even after no longer being considered a slave. Of course, there were also plenty of societies that rejected slavery altogether. Another key difference with the transatlantic trade was that domestic slavery was not about race or color, as both victims and perpetrators were what we would now consider black. This has sometimes contributed to an image of Africa as especially uncivilized, as if Africans, quote-unquote, sold their own to the whites, and were therefore worse than Europeans who had the decency, or so they claim, to at least not subject their own people to such horrors. But this is a very misleading argument. Perhaps the most common way to become enslaved in Africa was to be on the losing side of a war. And just as the shared identity as Europeans has never stopped the English, French, Swedes or Germans from going to war with each other, in the same way, the relatively modern identity as Africans has not stopped African societies from fighting wars of conquest against each other. Other, less common ways to become enslaved included slavery as punishment, temporarily selling oneself into slavery to repay a debt, or being a foreigner with no ties to the people in a specific community. The Africans who traded in enslaved people did therefore not see it as selling their own or their African brothers. They saw it as selling enemies, strangers or criminals. Again, it's always hard to generalize, but overall, slavery in Africa was more about status, power, and influence than economics and production. What changed with the European presence in Africa was the scale and type of slavery. Under the European flag, West and Central African slavery went from a comparatively marginal phenomenon to a machine a full-blown slave trade industry, the repercussions of which are still felt today. We'll delve deeper into how this transformation occurred in the second part of this series. While there were highly organized hierarchical societies that practiced slavery before the Europeans arrived, like the previously mentioned Mali Empire, these were the exceptions. Most large slave-trading African empires, like Dahomey, Ashanti, and the Sokoto Caliphate, formed after the Atlantic slave trade had already begun, and they tapped into it to procure firearms, luxury goods, and other things to strengthen their grip on power. Before that, it was more common for slavery to play a smaller role in most West and Central African societies especially compared to many of the new colonies Europeans formed on the other side of the Atlantic, where the whole economy revolved around slavery. These new colonies became true slave societies. 
In the mid-15th century, the Portuguese were still primarily after gold, and the potential of trade with West African kingdoms was so promising that the Portuguese crown struck a deal with the renowned Portuguese merchant, Fernão Gomes. In return for a monopoly on all trade south of the Cape Verde Islands, Gomes agreed to pay an annual fee, sell all the ivory he acquired to the Portuguese crown at a favorable price, and commit his fleet to explore a further 480 to 640 kilometers of the African coastline each year. This agreement sparked a series of so-called discoveries. In present-day Liberia, trade in Malagueta pepper, also known as grains of paradise, flourished, earning the region the name Pepper Coast or Grain Coast. Further east, the Portuguese found an abundant supply of ivory in the dense forests, leading to the region being named the Ivory Coast. And in 1471, when the Portuguese landed in what is now Ghana, they finally found what they had been seeking for almost six decades, gold. The abundance of gold was evident from the jewelry worn by the locals, leading the Portuguese to name the area Elmina, or the mine. The entire region would later become known as the Gold Coast. The Portuguese traded clothing and various types of metals for gold. Manilas, horseshoe-shaped bracelets made of bronze, brass, or copper, were produced in Europe and shipped to the West African coast, where they served as payment for the goods the Portuguese purchased. West and Central African societies had a long tradition of working with iron. The African societies with which the Portuguese came into contact had access to both iron tools and weapons. But the minerals were in short supply, making it more attractive to import from the Portuguese. The Manilas were also not a new phenomenon. Previously, they had been imported from North Africa. So the Manilas didn't become an entirely new market, but rather an additional one. Other forms of currency used in this region included cloth and cowrie shells Muslim traders brought with them from the Indian Ocean. Portugal had long been at the forefront of African exploration, but other European countries were catching up. Dutch, French, Italian, and Spanish ships sailed along the Ghanaian coast, each eager to stake their claim in the gold trade. In 1478, the rivalry between Portugal and the Spanish Kingdom of Castile escalated into a naval battle off the Ghanaian coast, which Portugal won convincingly. This led to peace negotiations mediated by the Pope, resulting in the Treaty of Alcazovas. As part of the deal, Portugal agreed to relinquish its claims to the Castilian throne and recognize Spanish control over the Canary Islands. In return, Portugal was granted the right to all lands discovered or to be discovered south of the Canary Islands, effectively claiming all of Africa south of the Sahara. Over the next two decades, the Portuguese gold trade in West Africa continued to amass immense wealth, transforming Portugal from a poor and insignificant corner of Europe into a burgeoning colonial superpower. American journalist Howard W. French, in his acclaimed book Born in Blackness, argues that this newfound wealth had unforeseen consequences. He states, quote, Lisbon's new monopoly over West Africa's tremendous supplies of gold then left the Spanish with little choice but to venture out far beyond the pillars of Hercules and push new exploration efforts into the westward extremities of the Atlantic Ocean. End quote. The Pillars of Hercules refers to the ancient name for the headlands that guard the entrance to the Strait of Gibraltar. Howard W. French suggests that Portugal's African exploits accelerated Spain's oceanic exploration, 
and the allure of gold played a big part in driving Christopher Columbus under the Spanish flag to inadvertently stumble upon America in the fall of 1492. In December 1481, the Portuguese dispatched a fleet to the Ghanaian coast to cement their control over the gold trade in Elmina. They began constructing a fort, now known as Elmina Castle, the first European fort in tropical Africa, heralding a new era. Elmina was the strategic foothold the Portuguese had long sought on the African continent. For centuries, traders had procured gold from this region, transporting it north via West African empires like Mali, across the Sahara, and finally to North Africa. But now, a larger portion of the gold began to flow south toward the Portuguese fort on the coast. From Elmina, the Portuguese could regularly send gold cargoes back to their homeland, a crucial factor in Portugal's rise as a colonial superpower. As gold continued to invigorate the Portuguese economy, their African exploration persisted, now with fewer financial constraints. In 1483, they encountered the Kingdom of Congo, a formidable Central African state, and two years later, the Kingdom of Benin, in the rainforests of present-day Nigeria. Upon landing in several of these locations, they erected padraos, wooden or stone pillars often topped with a cross and inscribed with details of their so-called discoveries. In 1488, the Portuguese finally rounded the southernmost tip of the African continent. They didn't linger, but continued up the East African coast, and a decade later, through Vasco da Gama, discovered the sea route to India. While the gold shipments continued to Portugal, the Portuguese increasingly recognized the profitability of the slave trade. It would be some time before Elmina would become a slave fort, but along the west and central African coast, many other areas were identified where the slave trade began its exponential growth. One of the critical factors in understanding how the slave trade could become so extensive and lucrative was sugarcane. This plant, native to Southeast Asia, had slowly spread westward via traders and was now being introduced to even newer regions and continents during the European voyages of discovery. The Madeira archipelago of the coast of Morocco became one of Portugal's first colonies in the 1420s. Here they introduced sugarcane, and a few decades later production was in full swing, increasingly powered by African slaves. For a brief period at the start of the 16th century, Madeira was one of the world's leading sugar producers. However, by this time, Europeans had found their way to the Americas, opening up vast commercial opportunities. Instead of small islands in the Atlantic or off the coast of Africa, they had now found entire continents to conquer with seemingly limitless land to cultivate and incalculable quantities of metals to extract. But to make all this doable and as quickly and profitable as possible required a colossal workforce of a rarely seen kind. The slave trade was now poised to enter a new phase characterized by immeasurable wealth, violence and suffering. Thank you for listening to Black History Unveiled with me, Amat Levine, and the first part about the transatlantic slave trade. If you've listened this far and liked what you've heard, check out patreon.com slash blackhistoryunveiled 
to gain access to ad-free episodes, maps and pictures, bonus episodes, and more. You'll also find a comprehensive list of sources for this episode. You'll also help me out tremendously if you share the podcast on social media, recommend it to someone you know, or give it a rating or a review on the podcast app you're using. In the next part in our series about the transatlantic slave trade, we'll focus more on what life was like for those enslaved. We will also, among many other things, outline how the trade grew to such enormous proportions, compare how the different slave societies of the Americas differed from each other, and look into how Europeans built the foundations of these nations on the backs of enslaved people. I'll see you guys then. Peace. Love our pets, but when the floor is covered in fur, that's harder to love. Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has powerful 8,000 PA suction to make hair vanish from floors in just one pass. Plus, the roller brush has automatic detangling for easy hands-free maintenance. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's eufy.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum, for only $799. Tired of ads? Ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.